This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. It's Unholy. I'm Yannit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And sometime about a year ago, we did something uh, strange for us. And we moved Jonathan Friedland from the co-host chair, which he, you know, sits in comfortably, to the interviewee chair. Because we wanted to talk about his remarkable book, The Escape Artist. It was, I thought, a really lovely experience to actually interview you and and talk to you about your book. Again, an opportunity to say to anyone listening to us that hasn't read it, please do read it. It is so relevant, not only as what it does to bring forth a hero that was really unknown before you told his story, Rudi Verba, but also how relevant it is to today, and not only, you know, because of Holocaust deniers or, or anything like that, but because of the line between truth and, and falsehood and what you do when you actually see the truth. Um, you know, I, I love this book so much. I am lucky to say that I was, I think, one of the first people who read it. Um, well, I was about I just, to say you, you know. were, I think, in the, one of the very, very first people to read it, actually. And the conversation we had was one of the first, really, that I'd had at any kind of length about the book. So I was still sort of feeling my way. And, I, you know, I think I, you know that I was never sure that this book would sort of connect with people in the way I'm very glad to say it has, because, you know, there are lots of books about lots of Holocaust survivors. And somehow I didn't know if this would cut through. And when you and I were talking, it was still, you know, at the very, very early days. So um, I think uh, the notion of it having relevance is about the way we understand facts, the way we believe them or don't believe them, how the world responds to bad news. Some of those themes have in my mind, I only feel sort of stronger, you know, um, all all these months later. So here is The Unholy Conversation with Jonathan Friedland. The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland was published last week. It is already, I think it's safe to say, a literary event Uh, on Sunday. The book will debut uh, in the Sunday Times bestseller list. It's a stunningly good book. Don't take my word for it. Yuval Noah Harari said, quote, a brilliant and heart-wrenching book. Philip Pullman called it a magnificent book, an important and necessary story. Anthony Beaver wrote that it is an immediate classic of uh, Holocaust literature. I literally could not put it down. This is just a mere fraction of the reviews that run the gamut from great to fantastic. If Jonathan himself had tried to write these reviews, they could not have been, he could not have been this generous. Um, We're so glad to have him on the program today, Jonathan Friedland. You know, you're neat, Levy. I now know why you get so many great guests on Unholy. <laughs> what a lovely introduction. No wonder they keep coming back. Um, that's very lovely. I've, you know, and I am doing interviews for about this book in lots of places, but I've been really looking forward to this one. Me too, me too. Because you were one of the very first people to read this book, and it's it's really good to be able to talk about it with you. And I think it was pretty clear that I liked it, and I thought it was... Uh, um, it was remarkable. And and we want to talk, kind of finally dive into uh, the book and uh, how important uh, and how significant it is. Um, and, and I'll start by, first of all, I, obviously you can set the stage better than me about what it's about, but it, it is the story of uh, Rudolf Verba, who was, uh, together with Fred Wetzler, the first two Jews to escape uh, from Auschwitz 
two of only four who eventually succeeded in doing that. And I think it's important to note uh, that he did it for a purpose. Um, He wanted to warn Jews uh, who haven't yet arrived at the gates of the death camp, and he believed that that could somehow save them. Now, before we're kind of diving into this uh, breathtaking plot, I kind of want to start um, from the 19-year-old Jonathan Friedland, who goes to uh, the cinema to watch Claude Lanzmann's Shoah. Just a run-of-the-mill activity for a 19-year-old, really. Yeah, um, I was a strange kind of teenager. Does it surprise you <laughs> really, that I was a, really? I'm very that surprised. kind of teenager? Yeah. Um, and for the first time, kind of sees the image, sees Rudolf Verba on screen. Um, let's play a little bit of that clip of Rudy himself, and then I want to hear from you. What were your thoughts there at 19? Why do, do you smile so often when you talk about this? I am not aware that I am using that smile so often. But what should I do? Should I cry? That's a question. (laughs) I don't think that crying has helped anybody. I look also nicer when I smile. I'm not sure. I hope. I think it's so typical of him that even just that bit captures so many different aspects of his personality because he did have this habit of sort of winding people up. Claude Landsman is a little bit irritated thereby or puzzled by that. And there I found episodes where Rudolf Verber was testifying in, in trials of war criminals and the judge would get irritated with him. But also, you know, he says, I look nicer when I smile. You know, he did care about his appearance as an older man. He, you know, would, would very dapper, dressed well. You, that bit, I think, is just a, a really striking moment. From, but you're giving the me the um, the Jonathan Friedland of today look at him. And I, I want the 19-year-old and what so he saw. So the 19-year-old saw. saw this amazing film, Shah, sure, nine and a half hours long. I saw it in two sessions, two sittings. That was the uh, – my, my strong memory of it was that – it's an amazing film because it's a nine and a half hour history of the Holocaust, but there's no archive. There's nothing in black and white. It's all what were then contemporary interviews in color. And it strikes me now that many of the interviewees were were not old. They were in their 40s or 50s. But at the time when I was 19, I saw this parade of old men and women uh, as I saw them. And they didn't just seem old. They seemed broken to me. Um, Yitzhak Zuckerman, Antec is in there and he's at one point he's asked by Claude Landsman not how do you feel but you know what I mean and he says if you could lick my heart it would poison you is what he says mm. it's the most amazing line they they are I thought they looked broken by what they had experienced and then suddenly explodes onto the screen this man who unlike them isn't speaking uh, uh you know a foreign language he's speaking English he is dapper he's handsome he is charismatic in how he speaks I think you even heard it there uh, he's in New York City the twin towers are behind him uh he's wearing this tan leather coat he looks like Al Pacino in Scarface you know he's got a kind of movie star swagger about him. It just sparks into life. You're thinking, who's that guy? Um, He leaps off the screen. He's vigorous. He seems a generation younger than all the others. And that is because actually, it took me a while to realize this, but that's because he was. I mean, he was his first day in Auschwitz, the last day of June 1942. He was 17 years old. Um, A lot of the other people, they were young too, but they were late 20s, 30s. You know, he's a teenager. Uh, and he mentions almost as an aside in the film, they, Lansman is not really interested in it. He had escaped from Auschwitz. And I knew even as a 19-year-old enough about 
Auschwitz to know that, you know, Jews just didn't escape from Auschwitz. So as a 19-year-old, I was kind of intrigued by that. I was thinking, well, tell you know, how? How did you do it? And Landsman is really interested in, in Rudolf Verber as a witness because he was a kind of ultra witness. He was there so long, nearly two years, and he saw every stage, pretty well every stage, of the killing process. He worked at different places. He had this uh, panoramic view of Auschwitz. So that's what Landsman was interested in. But I found myself thinking, I want to know how you escaped. Um, and, and you know, who are you? You're um, this, this amazingly... Uh, charismatic, strong figure who explodes on the screen. And it takes you 30 years to circle back to that. Yeah, I mean, he he was there in the back of my mind as just a name and a face and, um, and the outline of the story. I was a journalist while he was still alive. I mean, he I became a working journalist in 1989. Yoni, that's how ancient I am. And the, so I would have had time in the 90s and in the noughties to find him and track him down. But it sort of stayed there somewhere in the back of my mind. But it came back in, in the, it has come back, it came back in recent years with all the talk about post-truth and fake news. And uh, you know how things are, that people sort of sit somewhere in your in the back of your mind, mm-hmm. in the kind of sediment, and they just sort of rise to the top. And I wasn't even sure why I started looking him up again, but I saw immediately once I did, oh, okay, maybe that's why it's come back to me, because... Everyone was talking about post-truth, and he was determined to get the truth out mm-hmm. from under a mountain of lies. And so his story suddenly seemed urgent, not just relevant for now, but urgent for now. Yeah, and you and 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 we'll talk about that urgency because there is some something of that urgency in the book as well. But one more question about Jonathan Friedland, and then we move to talk about Woody Velba, because yeah, this is yeah. your um you wrote 12 books. Most of them are fiction. This is, I think, the only, the third nonfiction book. The last one was 17 years ago, and it's Jacob's Gift, which is a phenomenal book. It's a family memoir, essentially. This is a completely different kind of undertaking. And I wonder if there's a moment in which you say to yourself, this is too daunting to take on oh, as a project. so much. I mean, you're completely right. It's the first nonfiction for such a long time. And the other nonfiction I did, first book I did was a kind of polemic based on being in, in Washington. So I'd done all the reporting just by seeing it. And then the next one was a family memoir. Yes, researching my own story, you know, family, talking to uh, people who knew about three members of my own family. But nothing like this. I mean, this is, I had to basically write a history book. And that meant archives and uh, documents and uh, testimonies, legal tr- transcripts, um, and going through them, and and the absolute duty to get it right. I mean, with my family memoir, in a way, there weren't many people around who could say if I got something right or wrong. They'll complain um, anyway. It doesn't really matter. They would complain you. anyway. It's actually, and you know, some did. And <laughs> so that was one thing. This was the 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 truth is, I did have, and I do feel a kind of reverence towards this subject, and particularly towards the veracity, the obligation, the duty to be accurate and truthful because of Holocaust denial, because it is something you don't mess around with this subject. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a rule, for example, that you cannot write fiction about the Holocaust, but you better be damn sure you've got it. You're, you're, you're really serious. You've thought it through. You've, you know, I'm pretty sceptical. I don't want to be accused of making a single word or detail up in this book. Every 
detail in there. There's a source for it. There's a line of dialogue. It came from a letter. It came from a memoir. It came from a testimony. It mm. came from an interview. And so, you know, there's even a moment where Rudy feels a bead of sweat on his back. That's because at some point he said, at that moment, I felt a bead of sweat on my back. Mm. Otherwise, it's not in there. But I did feel daunted by it because I just knew it would be, uh, It was. I felt a duty to be absolutely quadruple, quintuple checking every single detail in the book. Let's talk about the escape itself, um, where the, I think, uh, skills of a thriller writer uh, really come in handy. Now, without giving too much away, this isn't the first escape in Rudy's life, and neither is it the last. It's definitely, the escape from Auschwitz is definitely the most daring and the most dangerous. When you think of I guess, the set of characteristics that helped him and Fred Wetzler escape. What did they have that others who tried and failed didn't have? It's such a good question. And also, it's it's an important one, because the very first answer is essential, which is to say luck. Mm -hmm. And I say that partly because he used to say that. And he was, I think, um, nervous of not just about escape, but about survivors, that question that's often put to survivors about how, how, you know, what was it about you that enabled you to survive? Because implied in that is, even completely unmeant, is a kind of criticism of those who didn't get through and didn't survive. And he was, and and it's very clear in all his different um, recountings of his story, he wrote a very good memoir, you know, it was it was written by with a journalist in the 1960s, 63. But he also told, told his story in many other places afterwards. He always is clear to say, you know, this random act of goodness someone did or some luckily I was. That's the first thing, because there was there was luck involved. But in terms of the escape rather than just survival, I think there was it's not it's absolutely not coincidence how extraordinarily intelligent Rudolf Verber was. He goes on to become a scientist in later life. He had we might talk about why this is important an extraordinary memory, but he was ingenious um and and analytical. And even as a teenager, he started applying that analytical brain to what he was seeing in the process of Nazi killing but also in the whole setup of the camp. And Without giving it away, because you're 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 very generously uh, uh, protecting some of the sort of plot, plot twists, he and Wetzler realised there was a gap in the Nazis' defences, not a physical gap, but a loophole, um, a sort of flaw almost in their almost in the kind of Nazi mentality actually, and he realised that if you could think through that, exploiting that, there might just be a way out. But it required, once you'd had that insight, you then had to have brilliant physical resourcefulness, bravery, and luck. And all those things came together. But it begins with this penetrating, rather ingenious insight into this, to spot this gap. When we started talking about this, but I think it's really important to know, because obviously it's a large part of the story, is just how... How important it was to him, you said urgent, to get the message out. He, it wasn't about saving himself. In a way, he was even, it's a strange thing to say, I think he could have survived Auschwitz. He was, you know, he was fixed in the hierarchy of Jewish prisoners in a way that maybe could have saved him. But it wasn't about him. He wanted to get the message across. He thought that this whole machinery was built on the idea that People didn't know what they were coming to. And if he could just get the message across, then that would uh, save lives. And this, of course, uh, again, 
not trying to spoil the, the, the plot, but this warning turns into an actual report. It's called the Verbavetzel Report or the Auschwitz Report. It's a 33-page eyewitness account of what they saw. And as you said, he has a very, very, an extraordinary memory. And the smuggling of this document out is actually a suspense thriller within a suspense thriller, which is also a, a, a remarkable story. And here we kind of, I think, arrive in the most exasperating part or most frustrating part of the story. Did he believe... It's two different questions. Did he believe and do the readers need to believe that he succeeded in that mission of saving lives? That's a complicated question because I I think absolutely he did. Uh, And through a series of international diplomatic moves, the report is responsible for the saving of 200,000 lives. The Jews of Budapest were in the sights of the Nazis and because, and I sort of give set out the the almost diplomatic dance that happens that leads to that the deportation of the Jews of Budapest who the Nazis hadn't yet got to and wanted to get to and were days away from getting to is halted as a direct consequence of Rudy and Fred getting this report out so I think he is responsible he and Wetzler for saving 200,000 lives and if you think about that number, I mean, Oskar Schindler, I think it's, we think in terms of 3,000 Jews, mm. Schindler's Jews, 200,000. Now, some of those were then killed by the Arrow Cross, the Hungarian fascists who took over, and they, but a huge number survived, and they now, they left behind children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I think it's the most enormous achievement. But you also asked about what he felt, mm-hmm. and he did not dwell on that figure and actually had to be told almost by others, look, 200,000, that is so significant. He was not fixated on that. He because was, he thought he could do more. Or yes. something more and, could happen. And a lot a lot of rescuers talk like this. It's fascinating. Holocaust rescuers, these are not people who sort of preen proudly at what they did. They, they're um, Several that I've read about and, and you know looked at their story, they almost obsess, actually, about the ones they didn't save. And in his case, it was specifically the Jews of Hungary. So yes, the deportations were halted in early July, but that was only after they had been carrying on from the 15th of May, uh, over a 56-day period, 437,000 Jews were sent to Auschwitz and the overwhelming majority gassed. And that was all after he had got his report out. So that is what in, you know, drove him to fury in the years after the war because he believed that that not he couldn't have saved the six million as it were. He didn't think that, but those people, there was no reason he felt for them to have been killed, given that they, the word had already been got out. His huge anger was that the word hadn't reached them. It had reached their leaders, but not them. So let's talk about that, because as you say, he was very, very angry that specifically the Jewish leadership in Hungary, also Slovakia, but but let's talk for a minute about Hungary, didn't get the word out. And specifically, I think that he kind of pointed at uh, Rudolf Israel Kastner, still a story that is very contentious in Israel as well. And he really um, blamed him for not getting the story across. Is that, let's talk about that. And also, do you think that's part of the larger question I'm aiming at, which is why is this story uh, not known enough, and especially in Israel, why is it not? You know, why is he not recognized for his heroism? Yes, 
Uh, 100% it is related. But so to go to the first bit first, um, the report was concluded and sort of signed off in the last days of April 1944. And within hours, maximum a day, uh, Kastner, uh, the de facto leader of Hungarian Jewry, gets a copy handed to him by the man who has actually compiled it. I mean, they are leaving nothing to chance. And the accounts suggest that Kastner read it, that he couldn't sleep the night he read it, that he showed it to other people. And he did not distribute it and publish it and disseminate it in the way that Verber imagined, Rudy, which is that really shouting from the rooftops, banging on Jews' doors, whatever you do, do not get on those trains because they are going to Auschwitz and to certain death. He sat on that report and he was at the time negotiating with the Nazis. That's not in dispute. The only question is about motive and what exactly did he think he was doing. And Kastner's defenders say he thought he was negotiating to save the lives of all of Hungarian Jewry. And Kastner's critics say, no, he knew by then that he was only going to save a hand-picked handful, nearly 1,700 uh, Jews who would end up on the famous Kastner train to safety. Uh, and that his price, is the accusation, was his silence. He had the report and he didn't distribute it. And that alone is grounds for for Rudy to feel the rest of his life a blood-boiling rage at mm -hmm. Kastner because the Jews who did go from Hungary, in later testimony, the handful who survived, Hungary, Romania, those areas, would say afterwards, we did not know. No one thought to tell us. They, I'm almost paraphrasing the words of Elie mm -hmm. Wiesel, but others said similar things. They were in the dark about where they were going. Now, Rudy's belief was not that if they knew they would suddenly organise into a kind of army, an underground army and resist. You know, he was realistic enough to know that these were impo often impoverished Jews with very few friends, certainly no access to arms. But what they wouldn't have done, he believed, is have gone in orderly fashion. And it was his great insight that it was that orderly fashion that enabled the Nazis to do what they were doing so efficiently. Mm -hmm. And he has this very quite chilling image, which is he says that it is much harder to, or much easier to kill sheep than to hunt deer. And that, you know, with deer who are running in a hundred different directions and you have to pick them off one at a time, is very hard and very time-consuming and a lot get away, sheep going into the abattoir in orderly columns are much, much easier to kill. And the only reason, nothing to do with some fault in the Jewish character, the only reason Jews went in that orderly fashion was because they did not know. And he held Kastner and others, other Jews who had failed to pass on the word, and, you know, it's handfuls, it's individuals, mm -hmm. but he held them accountable, responsible rather, for that for the rest of his life. I want to pause for a moment and listen to what how he explains that issue that you just talked about. What could have happened if, if people were panicking, if they were fighting it, if there was they wouldn't go in an orderly fashion. Let's listen to him saying it. The thing was the following. If the panic would have broken out and a massacre would have taken place on the spot, on the ramp, it would already be a hitch in the machinery. Mm-hmm. The next transport, you can't bring in the next transport with dead bodies around, blood all, all over the place, because this will only increase the panic and so on. In other words, I don't think 
that uh, this would have changed the situation very much, but the, uh, the, the, the Nazis were concentrated upon one thing. It should go in an orderly fashion in, uh, so that it goes unimpeded. One doesn't lose time. Mm -hmm. Secondly, if a panic arises, there were two, three hundred prisoners sometimes, there were only hundred SS, all sorts of things can happen. I mean, it would be possible that a couple of those SS could be killed, overpowered, that some escapes would take place, all sorts of unpleasant things which disturb the daily order. I mean, they were very concentrated that no disturbance would take place. Still on the issue of Israel, because, you know, you must know that in Israel, Holocaust Remembrance Day is called Yom HaZikaron LaShoah VeLagvura, Memorial Day for the Holocaust and the heroism of the Holocaust. The Warsaw Ghetto, ghetto Uprising, of course, part of Israel's iconography. I mean, Israel embraces these stories of heroism. Here is a true hero. He escaped from Auschwitz. He told the world. He managed, as you say, to save 200,000 Jews. And his story is not known in Israel. That can't just be because of him standing up to Kastner. There has to be more here. What else was there? There is definitely more, and you're right, he has gone all but unrecognized in Israel. It was only down to the work of a uh, tireless uh, academic, Ruth Lin, in Haifa, that his memoirs, the 1963 book, was even published in Hebrew in 1998. It took, you know, 35 years or more for it to appear in Hebrew. Even in Yad Vashem, it was filed away. This incredibly significant report was filed away without his name on it. Um, just and, and, and there are historical accounts that just talk about two Slovak escapees. Doesn't name them even. They, they, he and Vetsa were more or less sort of written out of the story. So why is that? And I think, unfortunately, it is very much related to the thing we just talked about about the about the Jewish leadership, Kastner, and so on, and something else about his personality. But but the most important thing is, is I'll start with the most important thing because that is the. Kastner episode, he was a, a teller of inconvenient and uncomfortable truths. People did not want, you know how vexed the Kastner issue has always been and in some ways still is in Israel. And he was firmly on one side of that. And therefore, there were a whole lot of people who were in some ways the official keepers of the memory and the record, who were either defenders of Kastner on the lines I said, oh, no, he's a hero. He saved 1700. There, there's that camp. But there are also others who just think, let's not go there. This is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, what Hannah Arendt called the darkest part of the whole dark business, mm -hmm. the role of these Jewish leadership, the Jewish councils, Judenrat, put in these morally hideous predicaments where the Nazis say to them, you, you hand over the Jews to us. And what do you do in that situation? Incredibly vexed. And Rudy went right in there and was pointing that finger. And that was not what people really mm -hmm. wanted to hear. Rudolf Erbe himself lived in Israel for 18 months mm -hmm. in the late 50s. It didn't really work out. And that was one reason why, because partly there was what's known as the Kastner trial, this libel trial, which brought it all out. That was all going on just before, actually, the time he got there. He found himself in a situation where really the then the Israeli establishment of the time was either defending Kastner or would rather hush the whole business up and move on. Mm 
Mm. Um, and so he was somebody who was coming up and he was inconvenient and awkward and unwelcome. People did not want to hear that. He was also a bit indiscriminate. He didn't just point the finger at Kastner. He also was pretty scathing about the Slovak Jewish leadership saying, you were the ones who compiled these deportation lists that I was on as a 17-year-old. So he was pointing the finger at them. I think the Holocaust narrative people wanted to hear was the villainy was entirely the Nazis and only the Nazis, and Jews were only the victims in a very uncomplicated way. And he complicated that a bit by, not Jews collectively, but pointing the finger at these particular individuals who he wouldn't let out of his sights. And also there was something about him that he, and you, you write about this in the book, I think what's, it's one of the strong points of it is it doesn't gloss over his character. Like he wasn't the uplifting, inspiring survivor of the Shoah. He wasn't Elie Wiesel and he wasn't the man that you, that sinks in the pit of despair, the Primo Levi that you sympathize with and relate to. He was very, very angry, like to his dying day. That is, you describe a very angry man. Yes. I mean, his family members, his second wife, Robin Verbu, who helped me so much with the right, you know, with the research for the book, uh, who is still alive and living in New York, uh, living in the United States, you know, she describes a gentle, loving man, you know, of course. And colleagues describe him as tremendously stimulating company, but they would also say he was abrasive. He could be arrogant and difficult. And Yes, angry, that accusing finger. I mean, it astonished me that he lived the last decades of his life in Vancouver, in Canada. Even the Vancouver Jewish community, when it held events about the Holocaust, did not invite Rudolf Werber. I mean, they had not just a survivor, a witness, they had this hero, this towering figure from the period living in their midst, and they didn't invite him because they did not know what he was going to say, and they did not trust that any talk by him, it would not descend into accusations and angry, you know, sort of ranting. And they thought, we've got high school kids coming here. That's not what we want. And I realized that that is what a lot of, uh, all of us in some ways are like with Holocaust survivors. And I'm, uh, this process has changed me on this. I think we have put terribly unfair expectations on Holocaust survivors to be the sort of beatific, semi-holy healing figures. I think Wiesel is such a good example. Almost the way he spoke, gentle, mournful. You felt you were in the presence of greatness with him. You heard from that bit before, Verbal didn't play that game. You know, he's smiling because he's got this bitter, sardonic sense of humour and he's angry. And that's not, you know, I found a letter from him to a BBC television producer saying, I'm not the Holocaust survivor of cliché, the clichéd Holocaust survivor, in a, and sort of implied that I know the TV camera wants. I, mm. I'm not that. He knew that about himself, that he wasn't that. And therefore, you know, in a way, people didn't sort of roll out the sort of carpet for him to to honour him. And yet, if uh, you know, if only they had known. I mean, he is, in my view a hero of the 20th century. I think his story absolutely should be there up with the Primo Levi, Oscar Schindler, Anne Frank stories that define our sense of the Shoah. And I'm really hoping, especially in Israel, actually, that enough time has passed now that the people who were around in, in who sort of wanted him to quieten down and to sort of hush up this story in the 50s and 60s and 70s, I hope that in a way that... A feeling has passed. I think perhaps that generation has passed. And now maybe there's time to look afresh at this and say, look, even if he told us things we didn't really want to hear, 
he did something truly extraordinary. And oddly, part of it was giving a warning that people didn't want to hear. That's why he is such a big figure because of that. You know, I, I was going to ask you, I, my plan was to ask you at some point, I mean, it's writing about someone who left a lot of testimonials and, and, and a book, as you said, in his own words, but he, he's not with us. He died in 2006. And I was going to ask you if, if you think you actually like him, but I just listened to you and I think the answer is is yes. It could have been a journey, but I think the answer to that is yes. Yes. I mean, and um, well, partly I want to be like him and be difficult and say, you know, but we shouldn't demand he be likable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, look, I'm in awe of him. I admire him. I sort of revere what he did. You know, do I think he would have been the easiest uh, interviewee and customer? <laughs> Probably not. And I sort of imagine him, you know, if he was to read this book, um, he would be saying, well, look, on page 222, <laughs> you know, I'm I think be getting in, a big book of corrections. That's yeah, I think it was quarter past 11, not quarter to 11. You know, I wonder about that. But I think, and, and what's really to his credit, I don't think he was desperate on a kind of ego level for attention. But I like to think it would have been gratifying for him to know that what he had done was recognised, even if it happened after his death, but also that the the story, the, the, uh, the burning message he wanted to convey, which is sometimes you have to warn people of something, even if they themselves struggle to absorb and accept that warning. But that's actually one point I, I really want us to make, because... There's something about, we keep saying this, right, that Woody Verba thought that if only the people who were en route to Auschwitz would know that something would happen. And it's quite clear that there is, besides the, the, the leadership and, and the fact that it took some time and the report had to come out, and that there is a difference between knowing the truth and acting upon it or knowing the truth and accepting it. We know those stories, right, of, of Jewish communities. I can think of specifically Rome, right, where the, the emissaries of the Third Reich and the Vatican telling them you have to escape and they, they don't believe it. So was there something maybe a little bit at the end of the day naive about thinking that if only people knew the truth, they would act upon it? Yes, in a way. I think there was, but it's something, it's a naivety that I think we all share. I mean, and we're both journalists. You think of whistleblowers, journalists. What we all, the premise of everything we do is that if something is known, action will follow. That, you know, if you, as a whistleblower or a journalist, if you repeat, report some terrible wrongdoing, the act of making it public will or should lead to that wrongdoing being halted. And again and again, we're disappointed. Um, and I think that's, you know, if it is a naivety, it's about something in the human condition that mere facts are not always enough. You know, one of Rudy Verba's antagonists, big critics in Israel, was Yehuda Bauer, mm -hmm. who is you know, still with us and the doyen yeah. of Holocaust studies. And I spoke to him for this book. And the, the small bit of agreement I think I w w sort of managed to tease out was that Bauer says that information is not always enough. The facts of something are not enough. Information only becomes knowledge when it's combined with belief. And his view, Bauer's view, is that, yeah, the Jews of Hungary, he thinks maybe they did have information, but even if they'd got Rudy Verber's report, the information, maybe it wouldn't have been enough because they wouldn't have believed it. And you have to believe it before it's knowledge, and it's only knowledge that leads you to, to act. And in a strange way, I think Rudolf Verber would have had to sort of agree with that because he did see through his life that even those who did get the information didn't act if they didn't believe it. And 
there's a I won't detail it, but there's a story at the end about how where somebody from that from from Hungary meets him all these years later and gives him real evidence of how people who did get the information still didn't believe it and therefore didn't act. And so I think that that is probably true that anybody, even now, you know, you think about the climate crisis or you think about these war crimes in Ukraine and those Ukrainians phoning their Russian relatives and saying, we're under bombardment, we're getting bombed. And their own family says to them, we don't believe you. I don't think you're telling the truth. The facts aren't enough if they're not believed. And I think that that's a universal thing that, again, I hope is something that perhaps can be take, people can take away from this book, that, you know, yes, you have to get the facts out there, but you also have to really make sure people believe them. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I think, uh, as we're winding up this conversation, that uh, in the weeks after reading the book, I, I don't think I told you this, but more than anything, it reminded me, and it's going to sound very strange to you, but it reminded me of, of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. Of course, very different uh, wow. from, from a, a musical about the, uh, sec- the first Treasury Secretary of the United States, but I think in what the writer has done, what he has done, and what you have done, is to make sure that you're pulling this figure back into people's consciousness. In Rudy Velba's case, it's really just not pulling back, but just pulling into people's consciousness and making them aware of him and giving him the recognition that he finally deserves. And I think in that regard, not only is it a stunning book, but it's an incredibly important one. So thank you, Jonathan Friedland, for coming on Unholy, I think. Is, uh... It's been a pleasure. I must start <laughs> listening to this podcast. You obviously... Oh, and to all my uh, Israeli and American friends who have been really, it's like I'm your literary agent here, asking me why they can't get the book on Kindle. I think the answer is because it's only out in the UK, not in the United States yet. So there's no Kindle version. But if you want it, you can just go on a British site and order it. Was that uh, passive aggressively promotional enough? I love that. I, I love so. passive aggressive promotion. So. Uh, it's absolutely right. It's coming out in the United States in October, um, but it's available now in all the other English language places, um, you know, Australia and New Zealand, South Africa and uh, and Britain, obviously. And I think import copies are available in Israel. And they, they are you know, indeed. They are and, indeed. And, and so I'm told there's lots of them heading there. So if you, you know, <laughs> if people are English language readers, they can Read it. Call me up and get a copy is what you're trying to say. They should be able to do that, yeah. (laughs) that's. um, It's been a pleasure, Yoni Levy. It really has. Um, We should do this more often. Talk, you and I. Thank you. And we definitely must put It's a Bit Like Hamilton on the paperback (laughs) edition. Don't you think? Only get someone important to say it. It is still a little weird. I mean, to have been <laughs> to have been both interviewee and host. There is something ever so slightly sort of which is better. Well, you're uh, a very good interviewer. Ground, dangerous ground. You're a very good interviewer. So it was. It, it, I felt in very safe hands for that one. But yes, I mean, I'm sure there is some two Jews, three opinions way in which I could have actually asked the even tougher questions to myself. But uh, but luckily, you spared me that. Yeah. Upcoming sometime in the future, Jonathan Friedland interviews me on Unholy. But that is yet to come. And we will see you very, very soon and resume our Unholy episodes. See you back then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.